If you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open it with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to look today at verses 14 through 29. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on the pew back there in front of you. And there should be a black hardback copy of God's Word. would encourage you to, uh, to pull it out and to turn with us there to the Gospel of Mark. As you're finding your place there in Mark 9, just a quick reminder, uh, we're in the month of February, and so our Sunday night life fellowship opportunities are underway. We had a great Sunday evening uh, this past Sunday as we gathered here for a time of prayer as a church family. And tonight we're encouraging you to, together with other members of the faith family for just a time of fellowship. Uh, maybe you do that this afternoon, maybe you do it out at a restaurant this evening, or maybe you go into uh, to a home somewhere. But enjoy some time together with other members of the faith family and encourage one another, pray for one another, pray for our church, pray for the advancement of the gospel. Uh, it's not lost on me that there's a pretty big game that's going to be played tonight. Uh, I'm well aware of that, and I'm sure uh, you may have some plans to, to watch that. Uh, watch it with uh, members of the church, and during that time that you're there, uh, perhaps during a halftime or before or after, uh, turn the television off and just pray for one another and be encouraged in the gospel. And then next Sunday night for our Sunday Night Life, we'll encourage you together uh, in your homes as a family for an evening of family worship. We'll send some resources out to you uh, this week to kind of help give you some guidance in that. And then the last Sunday night in February, we'll gather here on the campus in the Fellowship Hall uh, for our Men's Ministry Annual Chili Cook-Off. And sign-ups are underway for that. Uh, if you're interested in uh, participating with a, uh, a bowl of chili, uh, sign up at the ministry desk. But it's open for absolutely everyone, even your friends, family members who maybe aren't connected with the church. It's a great opportunity to invite them to come and to join with us and to encourage them uh, to learn more about our mission and ministries here and to learn more about Jesus Christ as well. So I hope that you'll engage in those opportunities as we promote gospel fellowship. All right, let's get into the text this morning, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 14 through 29. You hear God's word and follow along. And when they, and just a reminder that they is Jesus and Peter, James, and John, as they're coming down off of Mount Hermon from our text last Sunday. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able and he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, 
He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you today for this, your holy word. And Father, we pray that now in demonstration and power of your spirit, your word would be at work in mighty ways among us. Father, I pray today that you would be my helper. Father, I pray that you would speak through me and give, Lord, these your people ears that they would hear, eyes that they would see, hearts that would be soft to believe. And Father, we pray today that our faith in Christ would rise. For we ask it now in his name. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it, how quickly things can change in our lives? I mean, one moment everything's going great. And in the very next moment, it seems like everything is absolutely falling apart. A single phone call can change everything. We speak of things having turned on a dime. In an instant, we can find ourselves facing an entirely different set of circumstances and life taking us in an entirely different direction. Well, that happens in our spiritual walk too, doesn't it? And it's happening right here before us in our text today. Last Sunday, as we picked up our study in Mark's Gospel, as we came to the second half of Mark's Gospel, we were there on Mount Hermon. Uh, we were there on Mount Transfiguration. We were there beholding the glorious Christ, and what an unbelievable occasion that was. But here in our text today, we've come off the mountain, and that means we're back down on the plain, or even lower, we're now down in the valley. And that's the way life is for us often, isn't it? We love those mountain moments. We love the glorious occasion of, of being swept up in the glory of God. And if we're honest, we're all like Peter just a little bit. Let's just camp out right here. I want to be where it's good. I want to be where it's glorious. Uh, the old country preachers used to say, I want to be under the spout where the glory comes out. I mean, we want the Mount Transfiguration moment, right? We love those moments. We wish we could live for them, in them forever. But that's just not reality. The truth is we face many more moments, not on a mountaintop, but down in a valley. And that's where Jesus has gone in our text today. He's traveled off the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's gathered again with the other disciples. And they've moved from being on a mountaintop surrounded with the light of glory to now being in a valley surrounded with the darkness of gloom. It's a profound distinction in the locations that we're looking at in the text today. But there's another valuable lesson that we need to learn. Jesus was teaching his disciples something on the mountaintop, yes, but he's going to give them some more instruction now that they're down in the valley below. And if we're honest, we do some of our best learning. We receive some of the best lessons in life when we're facing our hardest trials when we're in our darkest moments. And Jesus is going to teach us a valuable lesson here in the text today. 
in our text this morning, in this moment as they come off the mountain, Jesus is going to give us help for our unbelief. Help for our unbelief. What we discover is that he is surely God on the mountain, but he's also God in the valley. And while we believe in him on the mountaintops, so we must also believe in him even in life's valleys. As we look at these verses this morning, I want us to to walk through the text in a similar fashion as we did last Sunday. I just want to break the text down for us. We're in a narrative passage, and I believe the best way to do that when you're reading a story in Scripture like we have before us is just to, to follow the flow of the plot's. To see how the scenes are unfolding because that's how the truth is being communicated to us. And if we can capture uh, what's going on with the plots and uh, what's happening with the tension in the text, we'll be able to understand its meaning and then out of that we can apply it to our lives. So I want to break down the text for us this morning in five scenes. Five simple scenes, walk through it with you. Give some explanation as we go, and then see if we can't come to realize what the main point of the passage is and how that can take shape in our lives today. So let's look at the text. The first thing we discover is a confrontation. A confrontation. Verses 14 through 16 describe the moment when Jesus and Peter and James and John come off the mountain. Uh, They've come back to the remaining nine apostles And then the other followers, the other disciples who were kind of there following Jesus in this time as well. They come back to them and there's a crowd gathered around them. And within that crowd, there are scribes and there's an argument that has ensued. Boy, it doesn't take long, does it? I mean, we go from the heights of glory. And now in the very next verse, we're thrust into the middle of an argument. The middle of a dispute, a confrontation is taking place. The scribes are going back and forth with the disciples. This is what Jesus steps into. In verse 18, Mark says, as Jesus came upon the scene, all the crowd saw him and they were greatly amazed and they began to run up to him and to greet him. Uh, Let me just pause right here uh, for just a moment. A couple of things that I think we can uh, learn from this, some some reminders for us here. Uh, If you're going to be a follower of Jesus in this life, you can expect some confrontation to come your way. Uh, You can expect that people aren't always going to get you and aren't always going to like you. Such was the the case with the scribes. We've seen them previously as we've studied Mark's gospel. These were the religious elite crowd. They were experts in the Old Testament law. And now for many chapters in Mark's gospel, they've been on a mission Uh, They have set out to see if they can trip Jesus up, if they can catch him in some way of breaking God's commands, of not keeping God's law. And so they're always on the hunt. They're always on the look in how they can get Jesus. And uh, in in light of that, they're also at odds with the followers of Jesus. And so they come to this place of disputing in this scenario that's unfolding here at the bottom of this mountain. There's a confrontation going on between Jesus' disciples and, and these religious elite scribes. And then in verse 15, Jesus is suddenly thrust into the middle of that. I think it's a good reminder. We always are right to bring Jesus into the middle of our mess. It's always good to bring Jesus into what's going on in your life. It's always good when Jesus shows up. I don't know what you may be going through this morning, but I would make sure Jesus is in the middle of it. 
When Jesus comes upon the scene, some things are going to happen. Things are going to change, and that's beginning to unfold now. The crowd see Jesus. Uh, they're amazed by him. There's a, a large number beginning to gather. And in verse 16, Jesus inquires, what's going on? The Bible says he asks them, and that them is directed toward the scribes. What are you arguing, arguing about with them? Jesus is asking the scribes, what are you arguing about with my guys, my men? Why are you picking on them? What's going on with them? Jesus is interjecting himself in this confrontation. I'm glad Jesus isn't afraid to interject himself in what's going on in my life. Nor is he afraid to interject himself in what's going on in your life as well. So Jesus asks this question in the midst of this confrontation. And that brings us to the second scene. What I describe as desperation. Desperation. This is verses 17 and 18. It also trickles throughout the remainder of our passage this morning. As Jesus asks this inquiry of what's going on with this dispute between scribes and disciples, the text tells us someone from the crowd, neither a scribe nor a disciple, gives a reply. It's a father who has a son in a desperate state. The father answers, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Those of you who are parents here today, you can understand this father's situation. A little bit further, Jesus asked of him how long this has been happening to his son. And he says, since he was just a little child, this father has watched his son's life be racked with torment. The text tells us that in some fashion, an evil spirit has seized control over him. It tells us that as it operates within him, it, it causes him to react in ways that we oftentimes would describe a, an epileptic seizure taking place. And it's got this father at his wit's end. He, he desperately needs some help. So evil is the spirit that it's seeking to destroy, to kill, to harm this, this son of this desperate father. And he'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard about the miracles. He'd heard of the healings that he had performed. So he, he wanted to bring his son to Jesus. And he comes to the area where Jesus has been. But Jesus is up on the mountain. So he finds his disciples, brings the child to him and says, can you help him? And in a desperate plea and acknowledgement, the father once again says they could do nothing. Once more, there was no assistance to be given. Desperation remained. Let me pause right here for a moment in this scene as it touches on this element of the activity of the demonic We've seen it previously in Mark's gospel. We've, we've asked the question, why do we see it with such fervency in the gospels? Why do we see so much demonic activity taking place? And I think the answer to that is because in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. And so there's this elevated moment in the history of humanity and the history of God's plan of redemption where Christ is present on earth. So all of hell is pretty much unleashed against him. But we still have hope. Because we've seen Jesus time and time again exercise his authority even over darkness and over demons. So we're not surprised 
We don't discount, we don't discredit what the text says to us here. But there are some who read this account and they see what's happening with this, this young man and they, they want to do away with the aspect of an evil spirit having some function and control in this young man's life. And they, they simply want to say that this was just a young man who had a medical condition. That he was simply suffering from uh, seizures. Some of you have experienced that. You've had them yourself or you've had someone in your family who has experienced sim- symptoms similar to what are described here. Sent into convulsions, the rigidity, the clenching of teeth, all of that taking place. So what do we, what do, we do with this? Well, I think we can acknowledge both of those. It may very well be that this young man did suffer from a medical condition. We don't want to discount that. We don't want to discredit that. Medical conditions are real. We live in a a world broken with sin, and so our bodies feel that. We are frail and feeble as dust. And when that's the case, we need help. We thank God for medical doctors and medical technologies and medicines that can give assistance in that. So what I, I want to affirm is that we, we don't need to see the devil in all the details. Sometimes it's just the brokenness of sin that's impacted our world, and we know it and see it and feel it. But at the same time, we can't discredit that the enemy is in operation, that he is at work, that he's seeking to destroy that which God has created. He's seeking to, to undo that which God has put together, and he's doing it in this young man's life. I'm inclined to think that there might have been very well a medical condition, Matthew describes it that way, in which this evil spirit has seized an opportunity to enhance, to take advantage of, and to utilize in an evil way to destroy, to distort this young man's life, and it's wrecked havoc upon this father and this family. And so he comes with great desperation. And then the next scene. On the hills of that is a scene of frustration. Frustration. This is verse 19. This is Jesus responding to what has just been shared with him. Verse 19, the Bible says, And he, that is Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now I think it's important that we understand the direction of conversation here. Jesus comes off the mountain, there's a dispute that's taking place, scribes and disciples. He inquires, why are you arguing, scribes, with my disciples? He gets a reply from neither party, but rather from this desperate father. He hears what is taking place, namely that there's a a demon-possessed young man. He was brought to the disciples, and they were basically useless. And now Jesus answers, and this time, the them, I believe, is referencing his disciples. He's answering them. He's speaking to them. And as he he expresses what's going on, we get a sense of the frustration that he is experiencing. He says to his disciples, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Uh, That, oh, is a deeply emotive word in the Greek language. It literally means that it's coming from the bowels of Jesus. There's great anguish in what he's expressing. And his anguish is over the faithless aspect of his followers. That in this moment, faith is seemingly absent from them, despite the reality that he has been with them for some time. 
And despite all that he has taught them over the time that he has had with them, how long am I to bear with you? Well, we, we hear the frustration of Jesus with his followers here in this. Their faith is seemingly non-existent, inadequate, not present. And as he expresses that, he concludes verse 19 by saying, bring him to me. What a beautiful reminder that if we should see anything done, if anything should be done, it'll be because we get them to Jesus. It won't be because of us. It won't be because of some ministry that we have or something that we have come up with. No, anything of eternal and lasting value will come through him. So Jesus gives the instruction, bring him now to me. I'm so thankful that Jesus makes himself available. And I'm not sure what you may be going through here this morning or, or what's unfolding in your life, maybe down in the valley. But know this, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Bring it to me. Whatever it is, bring it to Jesus. And then we move to the scene of demonstration. Demonstration. This is verse 20 through 27. They bring the boy to Jesus, and as he comes close to the proximity of the Savior, the Spirit, realizes the presence of the one whom he is now in, and he immediately reacts, convulsing the boy, causing him to fall, fall on the ground, rolling about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus inquires of the Father, how long has this been happening? Now, Jesus is not here trying to determine how much power he needs to unleash upon this demon. Has this been happening three years, five years, six years, longer than ten? How much, uh, how much am I dealing with here? That's not what Jesus is getting at. Yes, he has expressed frustration, certainly. How long have I been with you, you faithless generation? How long am I to bear with you? But now we see the other side of Jesus. He asks this question as an expression of the compassion that he has. How long have you been dealing with this? How long have you carried this? There's some of you that have been carrying burdens in here for an extremely long time, for seasons and years, maybe even decades. It's as if you've just walked through valley after valley after valley. Understand this, Jesus has compassion. How long has this been going on? He cares. The Father gives the answer from childhood. It's often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. Could you imagine each day, each week, each month, each passing year, having to keep careful watch, having to pull your son from fire out of water to, to keep his life from being snatched from him? And so the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus hears this father's plea and he he replies, if you can. Now this is interesting. We saw last Sunday as we began the second half of our study in Mark, as we come to part two of his gospel, if you will, that it begins with some parallels to the first part, right? 
We saw last Sunday that as the Shekinah cloud of God's glory came over the mountain that they were on, a voice from heaven spoke, and it was similar to that day when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and a voice from heaven spoke. And here we have another parallel with the beginning of Mark's gospel. If you remember back early in our study of Mark, Jesus encountered a leper. And that leper came to Jesus, breaking all sorts of of protocol, and Jesus went to that leper doing the same. And in that moment, the leper says to him, if you will, you could make me clean. If you will, you could make me clean. In, In that encounter, the leper is acknowledging the ability of Jesus to heal him. What he is uncertain of is the willingness of Jesus to heal him. If you could, if you will make me clean, if you're willing, do this. I know you have the ability, but but will you do it? Now, as we begin the second half of Mark's gospel, in another encounter where a miracle is going to be performed, the inquiry is made, if you can, if you can. Here, this father of a demon-possessed son is not questioning the willingness of Jesus, but rather the ability of Jesus. It's kind of a a flip of what we saw at the beginning of Mark's gospel. But what we discover in both of these encounters is the glorious good news that Jesus can and Jesus will. He is a Savior who is able, and he is a Savior who is also willing. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Believes. For the one who has faith in me, the possibilities are untold. Hearing this from Jesus, the the child of the Father immediately cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but if you do, I would encourage you In whatever fashion you may choose, whether it's underlined, whether it's circling, whether it's putting an asterisk out to the side, whether it's drawing arrows, whatever you do, I would encourage you to emphasize that father's plea, his prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. That's one of the best prayers you could ever pray. I believe, help my unbelief. And surely Jesus does. Because in that moment, Jesus sees the crowd coming to him in an even greater fashion, so he rebukes the unclean spirit. He exercises authority over it. He calls it out of the young man, never to enter him again. And in that moment, the spirit must obey. But as a last act of evil, he convulses the young man to the point that he is left like a corpse before Jesus, to the point that those who are observing this think, man, he's dead. There's no more life in him. But then in verse 27, as we have seen Jesus do previously, as he did with the daughter of Jairus, he took the young man by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And what we realize is the God who was up on the mountain possesses the same authority down in the valley. He has not changed. He remains exactly the same. And then we come to the final scene. 
another explanation. This is how we ended the text last Sunday. Jesus, in a private moment with his disciples, they're asking a question on this occasion. The scene has shifted. The events that unfolded have now passed, and Jesus is in a house, presumably there in Capernaum, where his base of ministry was operating out of. And in that moment, his disciples take the opportunity to ask the question that we were confronted with earlier. Why couldn't they get it done? Why their inability? I mean, after all, in the past, they had exercised demons. They had performed miracles. They had been sent out with the power of Jesus. But in this moment, they were useless and effective. And Jesus gave them the explanation. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus says, you want to know why it didn't work? Because you didn't pray. You know why you didn't help this father? Because you didn't look to me for help as well. Jesus says, you didn't come to me in prayer. Prayer is an essential component of what he wants his disciples to understand. So as we come to the second half of Mark's gospel, the public ministry of Jesus is slowly shifting off the scene. Sure, there's events like we read about this morning, but the emphasis in the second half is Jesus ministering primarily among his disciples. He's wanting to impart some important lessons to them because he knows that it's not much longer and he'll be with them no more. The cross is awaiting, and then after that, there's the ascension. So he's wanting to press upon them some valuable lessons that they desperately need to learn. And this is one of the most important. What we discover as we look at the scenes unfolding here is that Jesus is pressing upon them this key point. We must keep our faith firm in Christ. This is the key to this passage. We must keep our faith firm in Christ. Uh, we see that in several ways. We see it uh, because Jesus has expressed his disciples as a faithless generation, uh, that they have seemingly forgotten to keep trusting in him. Uh, we see it in the frustration uh, uh, not only of Jesus, but in the desperation of the Father and the disciples' inability to render any service. And the reason Jesus gives of that, you weren't praying. You weren't praying. A lack of prayer is much, but if anything, it's an expression of our lack of faith in Jesus. So Jesus is pressing this important point home to them. We must keep our faith firm in Jesus Christ. What we realize when we look at the New Testament broadly is that the question is not, did you believe in Jesus, but are you right now believing in Jesus? Not, did you believe in him 10 years ago, two weeks ago, but are you believing in him right now? Yes, you believed him in that valley, but are you trusting him in this valley? Yes, you believed him on that mountaintop, but what about this mountaintop? Are you trusting firmly in Christ right now? And here's why that is so important. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews eleven six: without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is how we relate to Jesus Christ, and faith alone. This is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. 
And think how important that exhortation is given where we're at in our study of Mark. In the first uh, 13 verses that we looked at last Sunday, it was all about beholding the glory of Christ. And man, I'm thankful for the, the seasons and the moments when, man, the glory is thick, amen? When you see his hand at work and you know his presence is there, man, those are some great days, but every day is not going to be like that. And so what we must realize is that we walk not by fight, not by sight, but by faith. We walk in trust, in dependence. We walk with assurance that we have placed faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And then what we realize is that anything we do apart from faith in Jesus is done in vain. That's what the dis disciples had discovered here. That they were trying to operate apart from faith in Jesus, and it was useless, it was pointless. Paul would remind us in Romans 14, 23, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the point of the passage is driving us to this reality. We must be firm in our faith. We, we must hold tightly to Christ. Even when we can't see the glory, even when there's darkness and gloom around us, we keep holding to him. So how do we do that? How do we... Keep a firm faith. Let me give you four things that we'll end on. So we look into the text. There's four things that we can look at to help us hold tightly to our Savior. Number one, remember our enemy. Remember our enemy. It shouldn't be lost upon us that we have an enemy. And I don't simply mean scribe-like enemies. Yes, there are those who won't like us for our faith. There are those who won't like us because we take a stand for Jesus in this world. But I want you to realize there's a greater enemy than what you can see. Paul would tell us in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in, in high places. We, we have not just scribe-like enemies, but we have satanic enemies. Peter would describe him as a lion, roaring lion, an adversary who is walking about seeking whom he may devour. Now we're familiar with that. We understand that expression of our enemy. That the devil, his demons, they, they are real. And man, they would love to distort and to harm uh, those who would uh, claim Christ and live for Christ and really to destroy any good thing that God has given us. We see it here in the text. Even the most innocent among us, even children, let it not be lost upon us today that the enemy is out for our children in this culture. If you don't realize that, you, you need to pull your head out of the sand. He is seeking whom he may destroy. And when we realize that, it should cause us to run to Christ, to trust firmly in him. That's what Peter says, your adversary, the devil, is walking about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what we know. What we forget is what he says next. We know verse 8, we forget verse 9. Verse 9 tells us how we do that. Listen to what Peter says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, verse 9. Here it is. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. How do we stand strong against the attacks of the 
spiritual enemy that we have, we have a firm faith in Jesus Christ. We hold tightly to him. Even when we can't see the glory, even when darkness is around us, we keep clinging to Jesus. Remember your enemy. Number two, realize our inability. Realize our inability. This is what the disciples had forgotten here. They were living off some highs that they had experienced in the past where they had exercised demons and done some amazing things. And, and man, they began to think, we got this. And so in this moment when this father comes and this child is brought to them, they think, we've got this. We can handle this. We've done this before. We can do this again. And then they're stupefied. They're stumped. They can't realize, why is this not happening? Are we not saying it the right way? Did we not say it enough times? What's going on? And Jesus helps them to understand that, hey, it's because you're doing it in your own strength. You're not relying on me. You're not looking to me. You're not trusting in me. Instead, they were trusting in man. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It goes on and says, that man is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now we hear verses like that and we hear uh, the, the, the reality that we're not to trust in man. And we hear that and we go, oh, I'm not trusting in any man. What are you talking about? My hope's not in who's in the White House. My hope's not in any representative. I'm not trusting in anybody I've seen on TV. And preacher, my hope sure ain't in you. I ain't trusting in any man. And what we forget is that sometimes we are that man. Most times we are that man. Most times we're trusting in ourselves and looking to our own ability, relying on our own strength, leaning upon our own understanding. And when we do that, our faith in Christ is not firm, but it is faltering. What we're saying in that moment is that, Jesus, I don't think that you're enough, or Jesus, I don't think you can do this, or Jesus, I don't think you got this. I need to do something. But what you'll discover, as the disciples did, is that you can do absolutely nothing. We need to realize our own inability that will keep us firmly trusting in Christ. Number three, recognize our unbelief. Recognize our unbelief. This is the prayer of that father that I drew your attention to. We come into the, the faith. We come to spiritual life through trusting, through believing, through receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There, there's no entrance into that apart from faith, for by faith you have been saved through grace. It's by trusting in Jesus alone that salvation is ours. There's no access otherwise. It's only by faith. We only relate to him by faith. And as we come upon faith, what we soon discover is that there are moments in our life from that point forward where our faith is really high and our faith is really low. Our faith is really high and our faith is really low. It's a roller coaster ride. Some days we think, man, God's got this. And the next day we're wondering where in the world's God at. And we're up and we're down and we're up and we're down and we're struggling. Let me remind you of something. Jesus gets that. Jesus knows that. And the best thing that you can do is acknowledge that before him. It's what this father does. He, 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 he cries out to Jesus, 
Yes, I believe. I believe in you and your ability. I believe in your willingness. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You're the only help that my son has. And then he says on top of that, where I'm struggling to believe, help me out. I don't know where you may be struggling to believe him today, but cry out to him for help. I don't know what valley you're in where it's hard for you to hold on to him, but cry out to him for help. Because here's the good news. You can't muster faith on your own. In fact, the faith that you believe with didn't come from you to begin with. When you believe what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace through faith, this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. He gives faith. And so if you need faith, ask Him for it. If you're struggling with unbelief in a season, in a trial, in a valley, in darkness, ask Him, help my unbelief. You are my all and I believe in You, but God, I'm struggling. Give me some faith. And I promise you He will. He will. He's compassionate and kind. He did it for this Father here. Come to Him in your humility. Recognize your unbelief and watch your faith in Him become firmer. And then finally, number four. Keep your faith firm by remaining faithful in your praying. Remain faithful in your praying. This is what Jesus told His disciples. He says, I, I know you had no faith in this moment because you expressed it through a lack of prayer. So what Jesus is leading us to see is that if we're not praying, our faith really isn't firm. If we're not calling out to Him, we're relying on our own strength. We're trusting in our own ability. We're not recognizing our unbelief. We're forgetful that we have an enemy. We're, we're wanting to tackle all of this on our own. You see, it's when we cry out to Him in prayer that we're bringing God into the midst of that situation. That we're bringing it to Jesus and placing it before Him. And so if you want your faith to be firm, call out to Jesus. Cry out to Him in prayer. Pray to Him and keep on praying to Him. Jesus said, you didn't pray, and so you couldn't get it done. Oh, may it never be said of us here at Poplar Springs that we couldn't get it done because we didn't pray. May we be a people who always believe in praying, and as we pray, may our faith in Jesus Christ grow even firmer. In this moment coming off the mountain, The glory was behind them. The enemy was around them. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, where is your faith gone? He's the same God in the valley as he is on the mountain. So keep your faith planted firmly in him. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your word today. And Lord, we're thankful that we have those mountaintop moments where we taste and see that the Lord is good. We know your glory. It's so real. It's so obvious. God, we thank you for those glorious occasions and the energy that they give to our faith. God, the reality is, is that there are many days Many seasons that we're not on a mountain, but in a valley. And Lord, in those times, we're prone to wonder, prone to doubt, prone to despair. But Lord, your word has reminded us today that our faith need not fail. We can hold firmly to you. You're there, never leaving us, never forsaking us. You're in the midst of it. We can call out to you. We can trust in your compassion. Father, for the times where we've acted apart from faith, leaning on our own strength, trusting our own ability, God, would you forgive us? And Lord, I'm I'm confessing my own failure in that. pastor to preach to lead God I need you I need you to give strength direction I need your power to be at work because Lord left to myself it's a mess so Lord help my faith in you to increase my dependence upon you to grow even more. And Father, I pray for those who are before me as well, that their faith, their faith in Jesus Christ would be firm. For we ask it in his name. Amen.